Will Hispanics save America? I know that might sound a bit grandiose, but I believe it's entirely possible. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society, can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed, and, and we hardly talk about it, right? It changed dramatically, you know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, he saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, when we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse. The globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their, their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when, when, there's, when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis. What is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? Patriots, there's a lot of reasons to be despondent. So many things are going wrong in our society, in our culture, in our politics right now. But despair is a sin, number one. Number two, despair is not effective, right? It, it, it doesn't bring about the change that we need, the reform that we need to reclaim our republic. And one of the reasons that I refuse to surrender to despair and to despondency, even though I believe me, I think I recognize as well as anybody the problems that are out there and the ills that afflict our society. But one of the reasons that I refuse to, to acquiesce is my intense and firm belief that the Hispanic engagement in the culture and in politics in America today is one of the most beneficial and new forces in American society that is going to revitalize and save this republic. And if I'm right about that, one of the key reasons that that's happening is my guest today, who I'm thrilled to have joined in studio, Abraham Enriquez, the founder of Bienvenido. Abraham, welcome to the Steve Cortez Show. So good to be here with you, Steve. Thank you for the invitation. So uh, perhaps you think I'm exaggerating. Let me know if you think <laughs> I am about Hispanics saving America. But there is clearly, even if I'm, even if I'm overstating that projection, it's clear, uh, I mean, just empirically clear through the data, that Hispanics are moving to the right politically in mass. Why is that happening? Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're a numbers guy, and the numbers don't lie. Uh, even just looking at recent elections, you're seeing that the Hispanic community uh, is a, the ethnic demographic that is shifting more to the right. And I believe uh, you have to look at some of the swing districts uh, in America. So whether that's uh, Maricopa County in Arizona, Hidalgo County in South Texas, Miami-Dade County out in Miami, Florida, these are, these are districts that were deep, deep, deep blue uh, in the past. And we spent 
years, the past four years, really outreaching, talking to conservative Hispanic outreach, Hispanic voters out there. And basically the consensus is this, Hispanic voters back, they understood that back then the Democrats used to campaign on this idea of hope and change, which were pretty attractive to independent Hispanic voters. Now you and I know that those policies were anything but hope and change. Fast forward to today and the Democrats have nothing but fear and victimhood to offer to Hispanic voters. And when Hispanic voters know that the American dream is alive and worth protecting and we love America and we're the most patriotic uh, group in America, I would say, because we know what it's like from coming from a country that the government is so big that it crushes the individual, that there is no room for fear and victimhood uh, in America's success story. Uh, so when the conservative Republican Party has that to offer, I'm saying, hey, we just want to shrink government and let you have economic opportunity. Well, that is that is now attractive uh, to the independent swing voter, um, you know, in these key areas. And you saw that, I mean, we just look at the midterm election, right? Republicans had the best performance in a midterm election with Hispanic voters. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Democrat Party has moved so far left that they've just completely alienated working class mm -hmm. Hispanic voters all across the country. Right. You know, I often say that, that uh, you know, I'd like to, I, I hope that our patriotic populist movement is earning the support in yeah. a positive way, right, from Hispanics. Yeah. But there's also, we're benefiting from the negative side of what the Democrats are doing, yeah. clearly. And I often say that Hispanics have effectively been made into political orphans, that yeah. a lot of Hispanics who used to identify with the Democratic Party, it has become a place totally inhospitable yeah. to, to tradition-minded Hispanics. I mean, isn't that fair? Absolutely. And I think that there's something to be said there. And it's so important to say that just because Hispanics are leaving the Democrat Party, it doesn't mean that they're embracing the word Republican or the Republican mm. Party just yet. I mean, there was a poll not so long ago, I think an Axios poll that showed more than 34 to 40 percent of Hispanic voters say that neither the Republican Party nor the Democrat Party cares sure. for them. Now, that's a that's a big deal for Republicans, because back then, an overwhelming majority used to say that the Democrat Party cared uh, for Hispanic values. Now there's there's this 34% of Hispanics who are saying, okay, I'm willing to leave that party, but, but what does the Republican Party have to offer right. uh, for me? So when majority of Hispanic voters are these working class populist voters, I think the Republican Party is now having to, to, to really understand that they have to grow this coalition of working class blue collar voters. Um, and when you have the top of the ticket, the candidates who are the most popular right now, really championing that populist message, uh, it, it's really embracing Hispanic independent voters across the country. So I think that we're going to see that played out, you know, in this in this coming election. But more importantly, I think this shows everyone, regardless of what, what side of the aisle that you are on, that the Hispanic voters are not, um, they're not loyal to a candidate. They're not loyal to a party. They're right. loyal to values. Sure. So those that champion those values, uh, you pretty much have to court them, embrace them, uh, and prove that you're you're effective. I think there's there's so many voters that I've spoken to. They say, well, I can understand why people maybe uh, voted for Biden, but now we have like voter remorse, right? They, mm -hmm. they, all he could offer, he had the House, he had the Senate, he had the White House uh, within his first two years of the administration, and all he could offer was the highest inflation we've seen in four decades, right. uh, more than eighty-seven thousand new IRS agents, and a border that is so insecure. You know, I think Hispanics have to take a step back and realize, wait, this isn't this isn't what I signed up for. So right. now, what does the Republican Party have to offer now? Right? Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the excitement that we're in. Uh, when it comes sure. to Hispanic outreach. And I definitely want to get to that. What is the positive message that we yeah. offer? It's not just that we're not the liberals, right? Yeah. That we're not the yeah. left. That's important to yeah. not be the left, but we can't, we can't, it's not sufficient. We can't stop yeah. there. Um, but first, let's, because I, I do want to talk about those numbers a little bit. And you mentioned that the most popular figures in the Republican Party, and there's obviously a lot of enmity right now between the Trump yeah. camp and the DeSantis camp. 
Um, however, the reality is they're both very populist nationalist yeah. uh, politicians. And I think yeah. that those of us who believe in the patriotic populist movement should be very thrilled um, that we are certainly dominating Republican politics. And I think mm -hmm. in some ways dominating, you know, national politics. And certainly it's resonating with Hispanics. If we look at the, the numbers there specifically, you mentioned I'm a numbers guy. So I always yeah, like yeah, to, yeah. to make sure we go to the, to the data and evidence because I think too, too many people in politics love to sloganeer um, and not back things with data and evidence. And, yeah. um, but when we look at the, at the data on those two, uh, you know, pr the most prominent Republicans in the country on uh, Donald J. Trump, what he did from 2016 to 2020, you mentioned some of the counties uh, around America. And in South Texas, the gains were truly astounding. Yeah. I mean, they were so big yeah, that yeah. at first, honestly, when I saw the returns, Abraham, I almost didn't believe them. I yeah. said, no, no, this has to be a mistake. Like these numbers aren't right. Yeah. For example, Star County, which is the most Hispanic county in America, it's almost 100% Hispanic on the yeah. US-Mexico border. It's 96%, I think, according to Census Bureau, Hispanic. Uh, Star County, which is not a big county by population, but nonetheless, I think it's representative of a big movement. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump in 2016 lost Stark County by 60% yeah. to Hillary Clinton. He didn't quite win it in 2020, but he only lost it by 5%. I mean, to, to move 55% in four years mm -hmm. is astounding. It just, it doesn't happen yeah. in electoral politics in that short uh, a time period. And then Ron DeSantis in Florida, similar kinds of stories um, in, in uh, his 2022 re-election. You know, he barely won election in 2018 by a razor's margin. Um, and the main reason was he got crushed in Miami-Dade, which, of course, is the biggest county in Florida, heavily Hispanic, very diverse, very urban county, not a place where Republicans typically do well. Mm -hmm. He lost it by 18% in 2018. He won it by 10% yeah. in, I mean, a 30-point swing, roughly, yeah. um, in into 2022. That's, that's astounding. And I think it gives us reason, again— uh, I, I don't ever want to be Pollyanna and say, oh, things are going to be fine, right? You know, no, things won't be fine if we don't take action. Yeah. But I also think it's important for us, particularly on the right, because there's a lot of righteous anger on the right um, yeah. currently, and it, it's appropriate. But let's also grab on to uh, legitimate reasons to be hopeful. And those two stats I gave you, Star County and Miami-Dade, totally different counties, right? A rural Mexican county, an urban yeah. Cuban, Venezuelan, Colombian county yeah. primarily, right? A lot of African-Americans too. Uh, those two counties, are those legitimate reasons for us to be really hopeful, not just about Hispanics, but about the country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just in South Texas, you have uh, Maricopa, I mean, uh, Hidalgo County, you have Cameron County and Star County, exactly what you're saying. Th these are areas that people were telling us there's no, there's no, we shouldn't have any interest. There's no way this that we're going to even make an effect down there. There are districts that were under Democrat control for over a hundred years, right. right? And because of this populist message from the top down to the bottom, uh, you get Myra Flores flipping Texas District 34, becoming the first Mexican-born uh, congresswoman in U.S. history. A couple months later, her neighboring district, Texas District 15 in Hidalgo County, was flipped by Monica de la Cruz, becoming the first woman to represent, first Republican woman to represent that district, right? right. Uh, Star County, exactly what you're saying. Uh, you know, Trump, uh, you know, losing it only by 10 reflecting how he lost it by over 60. I think that really shows that Hispanics, and, and I, what I find so funny is that, you know, Democrats, they, they understood that the Hispanic uh, group was overpopulating. We were growing, we're the fastest growing ethnic demographic in America. So I think they thought there's no need for us to do serious outreach because Hispanics would do the work for us, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to, you know, they're going to embrace this idea that this country is bad and there's racism everywhere and the American dream uh, is inherently bad for for everyone. And then what we're seeing is that the, quite the opposite. Hispanics are like turning on that message. And what Democrats thought the Hispanics were going to do for their movement 
ended up like hurting them in, in the most negative way, looking at Miami-Dade County. But I think let's look outside of Miami-Dade as well. What Governor DeSantis did overall in all of Florida, winning not only just the Puerto Rican vote, the Venezuelan mm-hmm. vote, the Cuban vote, but like the Mexican-American vote, right? I think also people don't understand that uh, when you're talking about the Hispanic community, there's so much diversity even in that. Uh, I think sure. 67% of the Hispanic voting bloc in America is of Mexican descent, mm-hmm. right? So the message that you might campaign out in South Florida might not be the best for South Texas, right? But nevertheless, this idea that the American dream is alive and it's worth protecting, which I think President Trump and Governor DeSantis do a good job of showcasing on their campaign trail, uh, really resonates with uh, those voters down in those districts that feel like they've been completely left out of the political discussion for for years sure. both, from both sides. Right. For sure, the Democrats have taken Hispanics for granted. But let me ask you about this, because we, we don't want to act like Democrats, right, as we try to attract yeah, yeah. Uh, Hispanic and earn Hispanic support. So let me and, and let me play devil's advocate here and yeah. say that, you know, we on the right uh, believe that we are all Americans. We all bleed the red blood of patriots, right, regardless yeah. of our of our melanin of our skin, regardless yeah, yeah. of our ethnicity or our race. Um, are we falling into a trap of identity politics? We as conservatives, yeah. we on the right, by focusing a lot on on Hispanic engagement and and earning Hispanic votes, uh, is there is there a danger here? Are we acting like Democrats? Are we putting people into silos where they don't belong? Yeah. So I want to be very clear: identity politics is a poison to can be a poison to our country if done the way the Democrats uh, do it. Right. Uh, but you look at almost every presidential campaign, they have coalitions, whether it's like a women's group or like a sportsman's group or Hispanics for whoever, black voices for whoever, right? I think it's come down to the point, Steve, where it's almost like all politics is identity politics. You have student groups, you have young Republicans, you have college Democrats. Like it really is the difference, I think. And the reason why I started BNB in 2019 was I was fresh out of college and I wanted to get involved in helping people like me who watch Spanish news all day and feel like the Republican Party hates them and wants to deport every single Hispanic, <laughs> right? Because that, that's, that's what Spanish news makes you believe. So I thought there's, there's this need to really educate the Hispanic voter on truly what the issues are and where each party and each candidate truly stands for. Uh, but I, I couldn't find that. And on the left, they have such amazing... Uh, groups that make you feel like you're embraced because of your, with, uh, whoever you are, you, however you pronounce your last name. However, it wasn't things that I embraced. And right now, the Democrat Party, what they have to offer is if you're Hispanic, you have to like Latinx rhetoric. Like you have to go by Latinx, right? And you have to believe that social climate. Explain please what Latinx is because some of our audience may not be aware of this absurdity. I don't even know what Latinx is, <laughs> well, right. to be honest with <laughs> the you. The best like, you can. Explain. I've asked so many different Democrats, like what does Latinx mean? Right. I've gotten a hundred different responses. Right. The thing is Latinx was started, it was it was started by white liberals in California. <laughs> Wasn't even started by Hispanics, right? Which yeah. is why polling shows that less than 2% right. of Hispanics actually embrace the term Latinx. But it, it, it what it is, is it's truly this LGBT movement to take the identity out of Hispanics, meaning that there is right. no such thing as gender when it comes to Hispanic language, which is the most idiotic thing. Because, because the Spanish language, like all Romance languages, has a masculine and feminine, right? And Latino gender. is considered, is the masculine tense. Exactly. And that is, there's a revulsion to that among exactly. absurd If levels. I go to my abuelos down in Mexico right now and I say, hey, I'm now going by like Latinx gender pronouns they're gonna they're gonna look at me like i'm crazy there, right. there's no way unless you can go date back since the, the spanish language began and change all of that today there's there's no way you can do it 
but th- that's what the that's what the left has to offer. Like sure. this Latinx, uh, Green New Deal, social climate change. You you must believe in open borders, and that doesn't that doesn't resonate with me. That definitely doesn't resonate with my family. It doesn't resonate with the people, the other Hispanic voters that sure. I spoke to. But let's be honest, Steve. There's still a lot of um, Hispanic voters that have maybe trust issues with the Republican Party. Sure. Maybe we haven't sent the best to these communities uh, on behalf of the party. So it's up to people like me like, and you that look like our community, that sound like our community and say, this is why I'm conservative and so happen to be Hispanic as well, right? right? So I think it's 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 poisonous when you're saying because you're Hispanic, you have to believe this certain way. Whereas at Bienvenido, we believe it's because you're Hispanic, um, these are the values that you hold. Now vote regarding on, you know, how you feel those values best represent you at, at the ballot box. Um, but yeah, I think that when you're when you're doing it the way the Democrats do it, it's like you are forced to believe this way just because you're Hispanic. It's it's a poison to our country. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. No, I think that's so important. I mean, look, it's just it's human nature that, you know, birds of a feather, right? I mean, to a certain degree, we just always seek certain affinity groups, whatever that is. Yeah. And it could be, you know, we're all fishermen or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we all have we all have Spanish ancestry, right? Yeah. I mean, or Hispanic, you know, Latin American ancestry. So I mean it's, it's very natural, okay, for people yeah. uh to at times uh, group that way, right? Yeah, and yeah. politics has always had an element of that, always, uh, not yeah. just in America. I mean, that's just a universal, you know, human condition. Uh, but as long as we don't make it the centrality of who you are, exactly. right? I mean, I think that's the key. And exactly. that's where we're different from the left, right? We don't exactly. say, uh, you know, that's that's who you are intrinsically. You're Hispanic. Yeah. No, you're a human being. You're a, yeah. you're a child of God. You're a citizen of the United yeah, States, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, like that would be our order of, exactly. of importance. And you're Hispanic, right? You so happen to be Hispanic. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I think as long as we keep that order correct, we're doing it correctly on the right, you know. Absolutely. Uh, now, let me ask you about this, because you, you mentioned your family, you mentioned starting Bienvenido at an extremely young age. You are so influential at such a young <laughs> age. I mean, I started hearing about you uh, and, you know, and seeing you uh, at first, you know, from afar in political circles and then started meeting you and, and uh, seeing you on important panels and giving speeches in front of some of the most influential people in America. Uh, you've had a very quick, very impressive rise. So tell us though, how did that happen? Because I'm guessing there's a more modest backstory before things really started going. So tell us your your background, your story, and how you came to form Bienvenido. Yeah, well, really, see, it came down to the 2000 in 2019, right out of college. Um, I felt like I was looking for a group to to volunteer and get involved, um, and all I found was oh, exactly what I said before. Because you're Hispanic, you have to believe these things about yourself that it's like, no, I, I don't claim Latinx. I don't believe that climate change is the greatest threat to our country. I don't believe that we should have open borders and I don't believe the American dream is terrible, right? So then I created an organization that truly was what I feel like represented my values. And I thought maybe this is just for me and like my friend group. Uh, then I found out, wait, more Hispanics across Texas resonate with this message. And then that message carried through to Arizona and then California and then Florida. And then little did I know that we were showcasing what we were doing at the, you know, at the White House back in uh, 2020. So I think it was just uh, the message that we were giving out to the community resonated very well, that it just really exploded into what is now this national movement. But it goes back to, you know, my grandparents immigrated to America in the late uh, 60s. Uh, And they came for economic opportunity, but they found something even more important. They found God in this country. Um, when they came from Mexico, they weren't believers. They had no idea. They, they didn't know who God was, what Jesus did uh, for us. <clears throat> and this white pastor fell in love with this immigrant uh, family, this immigrant couple. And he knocked on their door for almost every day for a year. And my grandparents who spoke no English, like, what does this gringo pastor <laughs> want with us? <clears throat> right. Finally, one day they're like, let's just open the door and figure out what it is that he wants. 
And that night, uh, you know, he took a translator and that night my grandparents received Christ in their heart and with tears in their heart and in their eyes, they received God as their savior. Um, and they realized, wait, we're, we were missing something and it took America for us to find uh, eternal life with, with our savior. Mm. Uh, they were so, I guess, heartfelt about what they found in America. They wanted to take that message back to Mexico. So they went back to Mexico uh, in the 2000s and started their church sharing what they found in America back in Mexico. And today they have the largest evangelical church in the state of Jalisco, Mexico. That would not have happened if my grandparents were not found Christ in America. So to me, I've always been raised with the idea that you can't separate Christ from country. You just, you just can't. And right now there is a serious socialist Marxist movement that is trying to infiltrate the Hispanic community that replaces God in this country and increases power in government. That right. goes everything against that I was raised. So all the values that my grandparents taught me, um, I find that they're they're on the line. And it's up to me to defend what my grandparents love of, of America and what my mm. grandparents taught me to embrace and to protect America. Uh, you know, I think as a man, Steve, you have this uh, time in your life that you have to devote to purpose. You look at the wisest, strongest, uh, you know, smartest man uh, in history, which I believe is King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was a very depressed man. And he writes, I have everything. I have all the money. I have everything that you can think of, uh, but I don't have purpose. Mm -hmm. And in the book you that he wrote, you look into this idea of, you know, he found purpose when he was devoted to Christ. I think every man in America, regardless of, of, of your race, regardless of what, you know, where you stand politically, it, there's a time in your life where you have to give something to the country that you love. Mm. For some of us, that's going and doing uh, the greatest service, which is you know going and serving your country in the military. Uh, for people like me, it was starting a movement that's taking back the values that I believe the left is taking from my my community and my culture. And so I think that we're at a time right now where every young man has, to, and every young person really, has to decide what am I going to do to fulfill purpose in my life, you know, in my calling in this country. Uh, it, it could be, you know, something as serving the military or starting an organization or starting something that you know that is protecting the values that you find so deeply and you cherish so much about America. You look at the fact that Hispanics, the average age of the Hispanic uh, in America is 29. We're the youngest uh, racial demographic in America. And when you talk to young Hispanics, all they care about is pretty much three things. They want to start a family, they want to own a home, and they want to start a business or scale in their business. Bidenomics and everything that the left has to offer is completely dismantling every bit right. of that, right? So we have to just, instead of saying, yeah, Bidenomics is terrible, the Biden administration is bad, what do we have to offer for right. that? So we have to create the policies that really uplift uh, economic mobility for, for young Hispanics everywhere. And, and listen, when young Hispanics do well in business, everyone does well. Mm -hmm. Let's be completely honest. Hispanics do the jobs that most people don't want to do, sure. right? Let's give them the resources and the powers and the tools to build America up and let everyone succeed around them. Right. You know, it's interesting you say about the, the work ethic of Hispanics uh, and Hispanic men have uh, the highest workforce participation rate yeah. in America by far of any other yeah. demographic. And I don't think that would actually surprise anybody who's yeah, yeah. paying attention, right? At how hard Hispanic men work. And uh, I live in Tennessee, a place that has not traditionally been very Hispanic, right? Uh, but it's getting quite Hispanic. And the reason yeah. is, well, there's a ton of economic growth. There's a lot of construction. There's yeah. a lot you know, going on in trades where Hispanics you know, dominate. And so Hispanics are showing up like crazy. And yeah. uh, there's a bunch of Guatemalans now in East Tennessee who live near me. And I, and I've had a few uh, folks who live there are sort of surprised. They're like, gosh, I can't believe like, where did these Guatemalans come from? I said, listen, we find the jobs, right? Okay. Yeah, you know, where yeah, the work yeah. is, we show up, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we will, we will get there. Even if, if it's freezing North Dakota, if yeah. it's the mountains, 
mountains of East Tennessee, yeah. if it's places where Hispanics aren't weren't normally found, uh, if the growth is there, they're yeah. going to sh- show up. You know, and you do the work. rarely will find a Hispanic on the street asking for money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I, I just I haven't found that yeah. because you, exactly what you say. You go out and you look for work and and you find it. I the picture that I love the most that sits in my office is my great grandmother. Uh, when when her and, and my grandfather, my great grandfather, immigrated here. Um, he was working the fields, picking cotton and the seasonal fruit. And she went and was a dishwasher for a, her local restaurant. And that year she got an award from her, uh, from her boss for being the most effective and most efficient dishwasher. And she, that picture she holds with so much pride. And before her passing, I remember she, she told me, this is what America is. I was awarded for my work ethic, not because I was a woman, not because mm. I was Hispanic, but because they fa- my boss saw the, the 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 strong work ethic that I have, and I was rewarded for that. And that to me is just so beautiful that Hispanics don't we don't want to be awarded because our last name or because mm-hmm. of the color of our skin. We want to be rewarded because you know that I can work hard and that I can get the job done. Mm-hmm. And and when the left offers this DEI, this office of DEI to ensure that because you're Hispanic, you're going to get rewarded. It's like that goes everything against right. what my grandparents taught me that to, to love and embrace America. Um, it goes everything that you know we grew up listening to. Uh, MLK Jr. And, and and him saying, you know, there's one day that I hope that will be uh, judged not by the color of our skin. That's what DEI, exactly what it does. Judges you by the color and of DEI, your skin. And DEI, diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion, inclusion. which yeah. uh, diversity and inclusion might sound like laudable goals, but not as they're pursued. Equity, I would argue, by the way, is yeah. not a laudable goal at no, all. No, no. It, it, equity is wrong on its face, exactly. right? Pursuing equity is a, is a Marxist yeah. notion. Equality is is a, a laudable notion, right? Yeah. The idea that you're of equal opportunity, equal playing field. The idea of equity, though, very different, yeah. is equal outcomes, right? Exactly. Trying to ensure equal outcomes. So DEI, though, uh, you know, regardless of how we parse the words, I, I always say that it really should be reversed uh, or the, 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 transpose the letters. It should be DIE because it, it means it, it, it means <laughs> the death of America, right? I it mean, is. It really it is. It, if we continue to go down that road of DEI, we will yeah. die. Okay, well, we will yeah. DIE uh, because it's yeah. it's toxic and uh, and it's Marxist and it's uh, in terms of equity, even in, in it's intentional. You know, it's stated intention, and then even in the on the on the D and the I side, the diversity and inclusion side, it's certainly Marxist in its application, right? Because it's not about. Uh, real diversity. It's never about diversity of thought. Notice, by the way, you know, exactly. And, and the left reviles people like you and like me, yeah. people who have uh, last names like Cortez and Enriquez, yeah. who happen to be right wing, right? Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, a particular, yeah. uh, there's a particular, uh, really almost hatred, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, have you have you uh, encountered some of that? Yeah, um, I think that, I mean, you probably know this better than everyone. When you do, for some reason, when I do media hits on not so friendly. Uh, not so friendly to conservative news channels, uh, the the person I'm debating, I, I I don't even have to open my mouth. Just just simply that they know that I'm there debating the or, or standing for the conservative side just makes their head explode. Right. For no other reason that they just can't believe that I'm right. I'm a conservative. Uh, but I think it's I think it's hilarious because at the end of the day, uh, conservatism is really you can back up why the conservatives are winning through data and through numbers, right. whereas in the left they can back up through emotions. At the end of the day, numbers and facts and stats beat emotion any day. And that's what, you know, that's what we have on our side. If the numbers don't lie, Hispanics are increasingly conservative, right? right? I think uh, eight out of 10 uh, Hispanics that we've polled through through Bienvenido show that they've, uh, are open to conservative ideas within the past five years. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge. The fact that Hispanics are now understanding what conservatism really is. And I want to get one thing clear too. Personally, I feel that Hispanics, it's not a racial thing. It's, it's, it's a value thing. So Mm. If you believe in the American dream, if you believe in protecting our country, you believe 
and, and serving God, then to me, you are Hispanic, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you partake in Taco Even if your name Tuesday, is Smith. Even if, yeah. <laughs> even if your name is Smith. It doesn't matter if you partake right. in uh, you know, Taco Tuesdays or celebrate Cinco de Mayo. No, being Hispanic is much more than that. It's about uh, truly understanding that the, the the nuclear family is worth protecting and the American dream is why we all succeed in America and America you know, is the greatest country in the world. I'm so glad you're making that case because I made this case, you know, at first internally and then externally with the Trump campaigns of both 2016 and mm-hmm. 2020, where I was very honored to be senior advisor and spokesman and a big part of my portfolio in both of those campaigns was earning Hispanic votes, was outreach to Hispanics. And what I would always tell the campaign internally was anything we do to reach Hispanics is going to reach working class people of any ethnicity or any race, right? I mean, just by definition. So like, don't think that this is an effort that is only going to reap benefits, you know, within this community, that your name has to be Gonzalez, right? To respond to this, your name can be Smith, right? Uh, And, you know, you can be... You can be white as a lily, all right, but you're a working class person. Uh, You have traditional values. You're struggling economically. You know, you have anxiety, all these issues, anything we do. So, but I want to be, tell me if I'm wrong though. I believe that anything we do that's, that's effective at winning over Latino support will also win over working class people of every other ethnicity. It just makes sense. It's the best investment that you can make in, in outreach. When um, and and might have to check these these numbers, but I think when when Romney ran, Hispanic vote was about eight percent of the voting block, and then it, it jumped up to ten percent when Trump wa- uh, ran in twenty twenty, and then in uh, in twenty sixteen, then in twenty twenty we were thirteen percent. In twenty twenty, we became the largest minority voting block in the country, which means we out outpaced the the African American vote. So when you invest in the Hispanic vote. You're investing in down uh, downstream, like the the, the black vote, the, um, the Asian vote, like every mm-hmm. everything downstream as well. Um, and let's be honest, I think the Hispanic vote really does encompass the Hispanic values encompass all everyday working class American values as well. So you're exactly right. I think when you when you target the Hispanic vote, working class vote, you're going to reach so many different demographics as well. I think yeah. everyone has a Hispanic living in their neighborhood. I think everyone has a Hispanic going to their church. I think every everyone has a Hispanic uh, that they see at the supermarket. Uh, I mean, the Hispanic individual has really just taken kind of all wide aspects of, of American culture. So it just makes sense to invest in um, the largest, fastest growing ethnic demographic, ethnic demographic in the country. Right. I remember, I believe it was about two decades ago when sales of salsa surpassed sales of ketchup. And that yeah. was sort of big news. You yeah, were too yeah. young maybe to remember no, that yeah. that was, it was kind of a big news yeah. item. I think it was roughly two decades ago. I mean, now of course it's not even close, right? I mean, there's so much more. And tortillas s- uh, outsell bread. Yeah, too. that's right. So, that's I right. mean, that should tell you something. So, um, okay, let's take it from the political into the economic sphere, because you mentioned about how it's an, it's, uh, an almost universal ideal, maybe not universal, but, but prevalent, very prevalent ideal among Hispanics to try to start a business. We are an incredibly entrepreneurial oh. demographic, something I'm really proud of, right, as a community, that we are go-getters who want to start mom-and-pop businesses that we hope become bigger than mom-and-pop. And your group, by the way, Bienvenido puts out so many good uh, statistics and so many good reports, but you put out this report that in the last 10 years, the number of Latino entrepreneurs has risen 35% over the decade. Non-Latino, the rest of society, up only 4.5%. So, I mean, literally, you know, nine times uh, the rate of non-Hispanics in terms of of, of startups. What is it about uh, Hispanic culture? What is it about our communities that, that wants to start businesses and wants to be our own boss and wants to be creative and entrepreneurial? I think it just, it comes down to the fact that we are, exactly what you said earlier we when we see a job we see work we, we run to it right? and i think we're not afraid of a fight 
Um, personally, when I look at my family, those around me, uh, I think the fact that America offers that to you, that the fact that you can literally start whatever you want and with hard work, uh, you can, you can grow it to be something successful is something that a lot of people, they, they look back and they say, wow, this wasn't, this wasn't achievable where I came from. Right. right? Uh, and the Hispanics believe in small government, big citizen, and that really emphasizes through economic opportunity uh, as well. Look at from 2016 to pre-pandemic under the Trump administration, over 1 million Latinas started their own business. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Uh, and I think the fact that conservative policy uplifts not only just Hispanics, but Hispanic women who tend to also have to take care of children and their home, but also that doesn't stop them from you know being able to start a business is pretty great. And you look at just how quickly things can change because now under this administration, you know, there are families that don't have the luxury to be able to start their own business because now they have to take right. care of more mouths to feed. Sure. I mean, inflation hurts everyone, every American, but it does tend to hurt Hispanics a little bit more because we have much more mouths to feed because we tend to have larger families, which little resources to do so with. Uh, so when this idea of being able to start a, a business and being your own boss not really, you know, and also creating opportunity for those around you, right. I think is a big deal. You know, you just drive down the street and you look at how many small businesses uh, open through Hispanics, but then they employ their cousins and, you know, mm -hmm. their, 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 their family, their aunts and uncles. That's a beautiful thing where you're able to uplift those uh, around you as well, because right. you want everyone around you to succeed. Sure. And you, you are correct. The, the average Hispanic household in America has an extra person. Versus yeah. the rest of America. I mean, literally an extra. So yeah. whether it's a child or an aunt or a grandmother, yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's an extra person. I think that's a wonderful thing, by the way. Yeah. But economically, it can be a stress, of course, particularly at a time like this when inflation is is running away. And you're right. Inflation is, look, inflation is bad for everybody. Um, but for the law partner who makes, you know, a, a high six-figure mm -hmm. salary, it might perturb him because it costs more to fill up his luxury SUV, but it doesn't exactly. change his life, okay? Yeah. But for the Latina um, small business owner who is just struggling to pay the bills, uh, for her, inflation is crippling, right? Yeah. Um, and, or, you know, or for take ethnicity and race out of it for, you know, for the single mom who's a waitress and has a long drive to the restaurant, uh, exactly. to work. And that long drive now costs her literally, you know, a lot of money. Her first hour of work mm -hmm. is the car ride, mm -hmm. uh, payment, you know, rather than in her pocket to pay for her, her children. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's crippling. So, um, let me ask you about this too, just broadly, you know, not Hispanic specific, Entrepreneurs, uh, you know, what do entrepreneurs need? Because I worry a lot about the concentration of economic power in this country. And I think that's something that Latin America has suffered from for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, very top-down command economies. Mm -hmm. There's no entrepreneurial spirit yeah. in Latin America. It's, it's very hard to find. I shouldn't yeah. say none, but very little, right? Yeah. Very hard to find in anywhere in Latin America. Uh, that is a, an exceptional American ideal and has been a great history of this country. I fear that we're losing that because there's so much concentration of economic power uh, into a relatively small group of mammoth corporations yeah. uh, that dominate their businesses. And they're often very much in cahoots with the administrative state. They, mm -hmm. they agree to promote leftist policies mm -hmm. in return. I, I call it paying indulgences effectively. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the, the capitalist version of indulgences. Mm -hmm. They pay indulgences to the left for permission to operate with impunity um, and to dominate markets in ways that I think are, are harmful to society. But the one of the answers to that, one of the solutions is entrepreneurs, right? As an entrepreneur, what do entrepreneurs need, whether they're Hispanic or not, um, in this country to, to thrive? So I think less, less government interference. You know, I, we have a coalition within Bienvenido of empresarios, which is made up of business leaders uh, of all different types of race and gender united to promote free market capitalism to young Hispanics. We saw a poll that kind of scared us a little bit that, uh, 
for the first time, I think ever, young Hispanics, millennial and Gen Z are embracing this uh, equitable economic uh, message, which is socialism. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is that when you talk to these young Hispanics, they have no idea what socialism really is. But they also don't know what free market capitalism is and why free market capitalism, the economic system that we have in America, has allowed for much more Hispanics to be able to open up their, their businesses and has been the number one factor of why uh, people, whatever race and gender, are lifted out of poverty. Right. But I think that we are entering this phase, Steve, where it's almost as if if you run for office on the Democrat side, you have to be so pro-socialist that it's it's going to completely wipe out uh, small business flourishment in America. Mm -hmm. And small businesses are the backbone of the U.S. economy. So what we're seeing is the massive corporations are growing so much bigger under leftist Democrat administrations. Right. And it's completely wiping out the middle class up and coming mom and pop uh, businesses, mm -hmm. which primarily tend to be, you know, immigrant uh, owned. So I, I think it's all about choosing the candidate and the party that has a policies that shrink government and allow for for the you know small businesses to flourish. But I also am a little bit worried at the uh, infiltration that China has uh, on business creation and flourishment. Uh, you know, there's a lot of what America depends on is free trade between our greatest ally and neighbor, Mexico, right? Mm. Uh, I think it's really frustrating to see how our Southern neighbor has embraced China mm. uh, and how now, because China is so present in Mexico, uh, it's we're starting to see how that affects nearshoring and free trade right. with, uh, uh, with the US. And if we don't figure that out soon, we might have a mini China down south of us mm -hmm. here pretty soon. Right. And that is pretty scary, just seeing how everything that's going on with the border, these sure. open border policies, I think we're, and it's it's so critical to talk about the human trafficking, the smuggling, the drug uh, trafficking as well. And, you know, I worked uh, in an immigration firm for quite a bit because I thought I was going to be an immigration attorney. And I know that asylum laws are some of the laws that are most broken uh, within our immigration system. We need a complete asylum overhaul uh, in the United States. And a lot of attention is being placed on the kind of the, the human aspect of immigration, but not enough is, is being talked about the long-term effects of how it's going to affect China being in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Right. So in that, what's going on at the border affects economic mobility in America as well. Right. You know, how we're getting, you know, I have a, a friend who just recently started his own, um, uh, architect company. He's like, I, I can't bring resources fast enough because what's going on at the border, right? The, the, the nearshoring and the uh, supplies coming across is just, it's not either, they just don't get here on time or they just don't get here at all. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, just the complete destruction that I truly believe China has um, over our Southern border, mm. which is devastating. Yeah, China's uh, incursions and influence in Latin America, I think gets too little attention in the United yeah, States, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, places like <clears throat> Peru, obviously Mexico, you know, more yeah. pressing. Um, you know, the CCP has grand designs all over yeah. the world, uh, but including in our own hemisphere. And I'm somebody who does not believe in interventionism, right? And I think that the the war fighting and interventions of the last two decades were uh, were super harmful to America, mm -hmm. uh, to our prosperity, uh, um, caused enormous human um, human damage, uh, the loss of life, the people who are permanently damaged, yeah. whether mentally or physically, yeah, because yeah. of those needless wars. But I will also say this, I really believe the Monroe Doctrine, even though it's a couple centuries old, is still valid. Yeah. It's different in our neighborhood, right? We, we shouldn't go searching for wars all over the world, wars of adventure like we did in Iraq. Um, but when it comes to our neighborhood, um, we have an absolute 
vested U.S. national interest that I don't know that we're paying enough attention to, uh, you know, unfortunately. But let me ask you more broadly about, um, because you mentioned uh, Mexico, Latin America right now, particularly the large countries are Latin America, they're all led by leftists. I yeah. mean, and I mean hardcore yeah, leftists, yeah, yeah. right? Um, AMLO certainly mm. at least speaks a little more like he's center left. I mean, although I think his heart is much more left yeah. than he, you know, <laughs> is willing to convey. But uh, Petro in Colombia, where my father's from, uh, he doesn't even bother speaking like a centrist, right? I mean, yeah. he, he, I believe, calls himself a Marxist. Yeah. Of course, you have Lula in Argentina, or in uh, Brazil, um, elections in Argentina. The the major countries of Latin America are thoroughly leftist led. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this. Is that a danger for the United States in terms of recent immigrants? Are they going to bring those worldviews to the United States? Is that a problem? Is that a risk for us? Yes, absolutely. Um, you look at the numbers and the, I think over a hundred plus countries are passing our border every single day uh, when it comes to the people that represent where they're, where they're coming from. You look at these countries like, uh, you know, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, not so much, Mex I think Mexico is the closest thing to a free market capitalist society in Latin America, uh, but still, it's still still kind of struggling there. Sure. Uh, so I think that when people come across the border, um, they're so used to like, oh, of course the government's now going to take care of me. Like, that's what I was told is going to happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it's it's incredibly frustrating because I think what we're doing, and the Democrats know exactly what they're doing, is they're they're letting in the next generation of socialist, um, maybe not voters, but they'll embrace socialist rhetoric to where their kids will understand, you know, that that's what you need to, that's what you need to vote on. The reason why I vote conservative is because my grandparents taught me that it was free market capitalism that gave us economic opportunity in America. Generations from now, I can, I can see where young Hispanics will say, well, I'm voting left is because my grandparents told me that it was a, this mm -hmm. idea that government's supposed to take care of you. And, the, and it's that that's what they embrace in like Venezuela and, and these other Latin yeah. countries, right? It's, it's not something new to them. It's, it's, it's something that they're used to. Um, and I think the Democrats also are very strategic on who they allow to claim asylum. Mm -hmm. You look at, you know, Mexican Americans they are not allowed to claim asylum right. because they, they know that, uh, you know, the socialist government take care of me rhetoric doesn't, doesn't work for them. Mm. So they don't want those kind of Hispanics. They don't want the Hispanics that right. want to, want to work here. They want Hispanics that are used to, okay, government's not going to take care of you. And you, when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, when they talk about the crisis of the border, they, they make that rhetoric very, very known. I mean, Kamala Harris saying these people need to, you know, get citizenship on day one of crossing the border. Right. What? Right. What? We don't know who these people are. Right. I mean, there are people that need to be here because they deserve to be here. They're here by merit uh, or they legit have asylum claim that they need protection from, from, mm -hmm. from the country. But those that we have no idea why they're here. No, I, I mean, over what I think a couple hundred thousand kids, a couple thousand kids are just completely lost in our system now. Right. Like, what are we going to do about and that? Right. Legitimate asylum claims are, yeah. are thankfully rare, right? Yes. I mean, thankfully rare. Yeah. 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 Now, I believe, but tell me your, your view on this. I believe that America's asylum generosity has been totally and utterly abused by yeah. the left and has been turned into a systemic way for the left to effectively make our, our border open yeah. right, under the guise of asylum, that they, yeah. they have abused what was a well-intentioned 
um, you know, heart motivated principle of we mm -hmm. want to protect people who are running, literally running for their lives, right? We want to protect yeah. uh, that pastor in China who's going to get thrown in jail, yeah. you know, or a dissident in North Korea, right? Who's going to get executed. That's what asylum is for. You know, a lot of, obviously during the Soviet days, a lot of very, you know, famous, well-known Soviets like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? Those, yeah. those were legitimate asylees. Um, this is a wholesale abuse today. And given that, in my view, but I want to know what you think, uh, whichever Republican wins in 2024, and I hope it's a, a populist conservative Republican, and, and I hope we take the House and the Senate, I believe we need to suspend the asylum program until we can, can completely revamp it. What's your view? I, I agree with that. And I would say when AOC went on um, uh, a media platform and she said, people are coming here and they deserve asylum because climate change. Yeah. Like asylum to them is now climate change. Like if your country has right. extreme levels of heat, then you can, like, can I claim asylum from living in Texas? Right. Like, I, we have right. some, some pretty, pretty gnarly uh, weather out here. That, that is, anything is asylum to, to some of these uh, Democrat lawmakers nowadays. So when everything is asylum, then we need to take a step right. back and exactly what you're saying, we need to overhaul our asylum system. Again, I, I worked in an immigration law firm. I know that asylum claims, 80% of asylum claims are not, um, like, they're not viable. They're, they're not real, right. right? And it's really sad, but what you said, it's a fortunate thing that, most asylum claims aren't, you know, we're not, we're not seeing a lot of that, but we do need to protect the people that truly need to come to sure. America uh, to be protected from, from, from chaos where they're, where they're fleeing. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I love that whoever you're looking at the, the, the dialogue with the Republican candidates. And that seems to be something that everyone at least agrees on. It's mm -hmm. let's secure our border, but then let's talk about immigration reform and asylum and asylum reform as well. Right. So, and I think that whoever wins in 2024, that is, that is a message that they have to really run on. And, and I had an interview the other day of someone saying, Abraham, how, as a Hispanic, how, how are Hispanics okay with this idea of people talking about maybe stopping asylum claims or closing the border? Like, how are Hispanics okay with that? And I say, how are Hispanics okay with that? You just go to South Texas and see how uh, the, the border crisis is completely just, just ruin the border communities that are predominantly Hispanic sure. down there. Also, like, me, I, I understand that when my great-grandparents immigrated in, in the 60s, you can't compare immigration in the 60s to immigration in America in 2023. Sure. Just completely different, right? So I think that this idea that because you're Hispanic, you have to agree with the way the Democrats are marching their orders to right. immigration is not, uh, is, is not well. And I think that's why you're seeing so many Hispanics embrace this idea of right. uh, border security. You know who in my family is the most pro border wall. It's my grandparents who live in Mexico. And they mm. say, Abraham, we know what's going on in our own country. We see it. We see uh, the, the the people coming in through our churches and, and mm. the stories that they that they that they say. Uh, we want America to have a border because our, our family's out there. You're out there. We don't want what's happening in Mexico right. to trickle up to the country that we know is keeping our family sure. protected and safe. I think Hispanics are the most pro border security, pro wall. Uh, group right. because we know what it's like when your country doesn't secure itself. America first is is the message of America first. It's so uh, attractive to Hispanics because, listen, if we lose America, where do we go? Right. Hispanics know that. So this yeah. idea of protecting your country is so well for Hispanics. You know, that moment really grabbed me during the 2020 Republican National uh, Convention. It yeah. was uh, Maximo Alvarez, I believe uh, his name. Yeah. yeah, the Cuban from uh, Miami. Miami. When he said, because he escaped from Cuba to the United States, became an incredibly successful businessman, great patriot of this country. 
And he said, there's nowhere left to go, right? Because when people fled Cuba, they went to Spain, they went to Venezuela, yeah, yeah. which at the time was doing well, uh, you know, back then in his day, uh, mostly went, of course, to the United States. But it's an important point. And I, I bring this up a lot that there's no safety valve, okay? Like, you no. know, so why do we want to save America? I mean, number one, we want to save America because we love her, right? Because yeah. she's worth saving. I mean, that's the primary reason. But number two, on just a practical level, quite frankly, yeah, there's nowhere to go, okay? There, to there go. is no escape hatch. There's no plan B. No. I mean, this is it. Mm-hmm. So uh, even if we didn't love America with all our heart, which of mm-hmm. course we do, but even if we didn't, just from a practical yeah. uh, aspect, and this isn't Hispanic, this is just American, mm-hmm. we need to save this country. Yeah, There's nowhere to go. Exactly. And like the Roman Empire, what it was destroyed within itself. And there's nothing that promises that America, the idea of the American dream and the opportunity America is going to be everlasting, right? I think that sure. it's important to to know exactly that. Like we have this country to save. And, and I know that sounds cheesy sometimes to people that might say like, oh, we're going to be okay. Like America, there's no way America. No, it, 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 it truly yeah. is. And, you know, most people think that we're at our halftime of saving and protecting America. I think we're pretty much at third quarter, quite honestly, like we're, we're close to the finish. And unfortunately, Hispanics have been, Hispanic voters have been sitting on the sidelines for far too long. We don't have the luxury anymore of saying, well, we're just not going to get involved mm-hmm. because it, it it comes down to that. We don't have the luxury in the sidelines. We sure. got to get on the field. We got to play. We got to play to win because if this country falls apart, it's it's going to be because we sat on the sidelines. Right. Because we just decided to say, okay, there's no room for me in this. In this no, battle. you're right. And Hispanics traditionally have not been terribly political, right? Yeah. Uh, particularly yeah. compared to black Americans, yeah. right? Not at all yeah. uh, political. And uh and maybe that was fine in the past, but it's not today, yeah. right? Given the current status of America yeah. and given the fact that I believe we're losing our republic. And I, I'm with you. It is it is late in the game. Uh, I'm not even sure it's it's third, third quarter. quarter. <laughs> I think it's late fourth quarter. But, you know, regardless, the point is we agree yeah. it's late, right? Yeah, and that yeah. the clock is ticking, right? That, you know, and again, I, I'm not saying that to be, uh, uh, you know, to try to fear monger, but rather yeah. to motivate, right? To say, yeah. you know, it is savable, but, you know, yeah. the, the hour is late and the clock is ticking. Let me ask you about this. Outside of... Uh, outside of Hispanics, but just because you mentioned, you know, too many Hispanics politically on the sidelines. What about evangelicals just generally? And of course, the Hispanic evangelical community is growing massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, according to Axios, by 2030, the majority of U.S. Hispanics will be evangelical, which yeah. is a massive shift, right? Yeah. I mean, the U.S. Hispanic community was overwhelmingly Catholic for all of U.S. history. Um, that's changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, by 2030, within just a few years, probably going to be majority evangelical. So, but, but whether Hispanic or not, evangelicals uh, have not been engaged, at least in my view, in the way they, they need to be in the culture, in, in politics, um, in culture, have been, I think, content too often to say, we're going to take care of our family, our church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where our concerns lie. And of course, that has to be your first concern. But yeah. as an evangelical and as somebody who's very influential, not just in the Hispanic world, but in the evangelical world, uh, what's your message to evangelicals and what's going to motivate them to truly engage the way the country needs? Yeah, which good governance is God's plan, truly. Uh, and this idea that the church cannot be involved, it goes against everything you read in scripture. Uh, Elijah, Moses, Daniel, Jesus, they all made change through the halls of government. You mm-hmm. saying that you cannot be involved and shouldn't be involved is why we have parents getting their children ripped away from them in California because they don't want to make them go through life altering uh, gender modification, right? It's why a pastor has uh, a ton of lawsuits because he decided to open up his church during COVID. That is, that's no one else's fault, but the church's fault because we don't protect our own, because we don't get involved. The government 
is able to tell you when you can and cannot open your church. And I think it's one good thing, and I'm even sad to say this, that came from COVID, is the church woke up and realized, wow, it is so easy for government to mm. take away my right to work. It is our first amendment right. Okay. And in 2020, we had the most restrictive, government-restricted laws that told a church, you told a pastor, you could go to jail for opening up your church. If that doesn't sound the alarm to pastors right. everywhere, I don't know. I don't know what will. And when it particularly talks, my my background and my experience is is with the Hispanic church. And Steve, I for a long time I was so frustrated. Why are you guys not involved? Hispanic pastors are the most conservative. Mm-hmm. If, if if liberals think I'm far right, <laughs> you don't want to see my Hispanic pastor back home. Yeah, what he what he talks about. They make the you pulpit, look like right? a yeah, yeah. They make me a wishy washy like, moderate. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so to me, it's like, you have the perfect platform. Why, why aren't you using it? And at first I realized uh, that it was just kind of me being upset and, and frustrated. Then I actually got to speak to these pastors and a lot of them, you have to educate them because whether it's a first or second generation pastor, they come from a country where it's taboo to get involved. Your church, you do not, your yeah. church does not get involved in politics in right. Guatemala, in Honduras, in Mexico, right? It's, it's Well, and especially evangelical churches because the yeah. Catholic church historically was yeah. so aligned with very corrupt governments in Latin exactly. America, right? So the evangelical church understandably reacted against that model, yeah. right? And said, we're not going to follow that model of sort of corruption exactly. via a marriage with the state. Yeah. So they understandable. Bring, they bring that, that, that mindset to America. Right. So with us, it, it's with our faith assembly, we created a faith assembly, which is a coalition of um, over 5,000 pastors united to just do that, bring education to the congregation and say, you, if you don't get involved, if you don't vote, uh, then this country is going to go to shambles and it's all your fault. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the message you have to have. Yeah. But at first it was kind of educating these pastors and saying, this isn't, this isn't like back home. You, you can, right. you can talk about, you know, government not shutting down your church. That, right. that is your first amendment. Right. And Steve, when you go down the list and kind of explain what a pastor can and cannot do, their face just lights up and saying, wow, I, I can do, I can host right. a voter registration drive right. in my church. I can pass out a voter guide at my church. It's, it's almost as if they feel like, uh, I, they were take something was taken from them right. and they now they got it back and so now we have we're 5000 pastors that are so alive and ready to uh to get involved and i think what 45% of uh hispanic voters uh say that they align with the conservative message uh and one out of 3 um are evangelicals but then again one out of 3 evangelical voters in general in the country vote in presidential elections if majority of evangelical voters voted every single election. We wouldn't have right. this idea or this problem of not knowing who our, our no, candidates are. And, and I would add to that also, if, if practicing Catholics uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of political analysis of Catholics, if they just ask people, they're Catholic, there's a lot of people self-identify as Catholics, but they're just culturally Catholic, right? Like they don't practice. Yeah, yeah. So, because practicing Catholics are politically are very similar to evangelicals. I mean, they hold very similar, very yeah. conservative views. So if practicing Catholics and evangelicals uh, were to vote in higher numbers, if we can just boost those percentages, and I don't even mean boost them a whole lot, Abraham, I mean, but just boost them even yeah. a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. we win all these swing states. Exactly. You know, I mean, we win all of them, right? Yeah. Um, which is why, you know, I personally, I care deeply about the economic issues, and that's kind of my forte, that's kind of my lane. Yeah. Uh, but gosh, we can never forget the the cultural issues, right? Let me and tell you something, the power behind the evangelical, the church vote. Um, from a small town, Lubbock, Texas, West Texas, very conservative um, city. And during... In 2021, Planned Parenthood decided to set up shop there in Lubbock. And everyone was just 
frustrated. How are we letting this happen in Lubbock? Out of all places in Texas, Lubbock, Texas should not have a Planned Parenthood um, center here. And they took it to city council. City council said, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to get involved. We're going to get lawsuits here. We can't afford that. We don't want, just let them do what they got to do. Well, the church didn't like that. So a coalition, we built a coalition of over 200, um, both evangelical and Catholic parishes and churches came together and said, we're not going to stand for this. It wasn't a political issue. It was just mm. simply, we don't want abortion allowed um, in Lubbock. So our state representatives helped us. We put an ordinance on the ballot. Immediately, millions of dollars came in from California and New York uh, to, to, to beat, our, to beat our, our, our message. And polling showed that we weren't going to win that special election um, at all because it showed that uh, most voters were going to side with Planned Parenthood and we just didn't have the budget. But because 200 churches and Catholic parishes came together, uh, May of 20, June of 2021, Lubbock became the largest city in the country to ban abortion. Wow. Not, not a single abortion could happen God in bless. Lubbock, Texas. And it wasn't because of Republicans. It was because the church came together and said, we're not going to stand for this. Then the church said, okay, we don't have... Uh, we want more. We don't have enough of this. We want more. So they went after every city council seat that that didn't want to, you know, out force Planned Parenthood out, and they won every city city council seat. They wow. they propped up a member of their congregation to run against a city council member that was for Planned Parenthood. Then they went against the mayor as well. So not only did they banish Planned Parenthood and made the Lubbock the largest sanctuary city for unborn lives, yeah. but they also real went sanctuary. after real not sanctuary. That, yeah, yeah. Then they went after city council and mayor and completely flipped the, the city. Wow. I mean, that is the power of the um, of the evangelical and the church vote. And if we can replicate that all across the country, done. I mean, mm -hmm. we won't have to worry about another you know election again. Our candidates will win because when the church votes, we win every single time. The church is the largest grassroots organization in the country. Democrats know that. That's why they've long established their territory within black churches. The Hispanic evangelical church is just this pot of gold for the conservative movement, and it's basically untouched. So with our faith assembly, that's what we're doing. We're going to these evangelical Hispanic churches, and we're saying, all we want to do is to make sure that your congregation is registered to vote, and here's a voter guide, and let them know the difference between the parties. Eight out of 10 will vote conservative. And 90% of first-time registered voters will vote that same election. Right. That's really where the, 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 the bulk of the outreach is in our country. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that. It is, it is entirely legal and correct and ethical yeah. for churches to register voters, right? Yeah. And churches absolutely should be doing yeah. this. And they can also talk, uh, while there's a lot of restrictions about ca specific candidates, they can talk yeah. any issues, right? Any issues. I mean, without restriction, yeah. talk about issues. Yeah. Um, and it will be very clear to the to the congregants and to the parishioners which candidates line up. Isn't on that issues? sad, Steve? That we we've, we've we've gone to a place where uh, I think back then, I mean, I think JFK was pro life. He was, he was a Catholic mm -hmm. Democrat. Back then, Democrats believed in didn't believe in this idea that a baby could be you know, aborted moments you know after after right. you know being brought to life. That's that's sad that we live in a in a state of of this country where. Clearly, there is a clear difference between a Republican and Democrat candidate when based on biblical issues. Right. That's truly just sad. Right. It is. But it's the reality, right? Yeah. And, we, and we have to deal in reality. Speaking of reality, maybe a harsh one. Let me ask you about this. You know, again, not Hispanic specific, but because you're young um, and again, very influential, not just in Hispanic uh, circles, not just evangelical, but also in, in just youth politics in this country. I'm worried, and and maybe I'm just a grumpy, you know, middle-aged guy, but I'm worried about <laughs> the young when I when I look at polling. Uh, for example, uh, ben Sass, who I wasn't a big fan of him as a senator, but he made some pretty good points. Uh, he's now president of the University of Florida. Hopefully he'll do well there. 
Uh, he pointed out a poll from New York Times showed that young people, 40% of young adults in America said that free speech can be, quote, dangerous. Okay, that it's a, a dangerous principle. This is even more worrisome to me, Gallup. And this, this got a lot of media attention, actually, about the fall in patriotism. And unfortunately, patriotism is tanking in every demographic group in America, which is really worrisome, but particularly among young people. And this is relatively recently. In 2015, the percentage of young Americans who said they're extremely proud of America, mm-hmm. 42%. Yeah. Now, that number is way too low for my liking, yeah. but regardless, 42% in 2015. Today, 18%. Yeah. 18% of young Americans say they are extremely proud of America. Um, tell me, you know, as a middle-aged guy, I worry, gosh, it's it's unsavable, this generation. They've been so polluted by schools, by pop culture, yeah. um, by Marxism, frankly, even though it's not called that, um, that I'm not sure politically that and culturally that they're savable if only 18% are extremely proud of America. But, yeah. t- but tell me why you're why I'm wrong, why you're optimistic. What's- so I'm optimistic because uh, right out of college, when you start finding, trying to find a home, when you're trying to find work, when those taxes come out of your paycheck, you start realizing, okay, maybe the, the, the things that I thought back in college aren't actually, the policies I thought worked in, in college aren't actually true to where I am today. But I will say millennials and Gen Z have such lack of purpose. We talked about this a little earlier mm-hmm. today. Uh, when you don't have purpose, you easily fall into whatever the left pushes pushes at you, right? And conservatives, we believe, majority of us, we believe in God, right? So we understand that we don't worship government. We don't depend on government. Our faith comes from God uh, in God alone. Our unalienable rights come from our creator. We right. believe in God. While Democrats might say that they don't believe in God, they definitely do have a God. And it's a socialist Marxist God. And they have ordained themselves as a high priest of this new religion, which is cultural Marxist. And they have infiltrated the media. They've infiltrated Hollywood. And unfortunately, they've infiltrated our schools, not only universities, but high schools, middle schools, even elementary. Uh, They have completely just uh, poisoned our education system. And I realized that when I went to college, I went to a small private Christian university, which by nature, you would assume that it's heavily conservative. And it was, um, but I found almost no campus organizations to get, to, to get plugged into that were conservative or that believed in, you know, believed in the values that I believed in, mm-hmm. but there were a ton of left-leaning organizations mm-hmm. on a private Christian university college campus. Yeah. So a lot of that goes to your student government. So I, I kind of found this out the hard way is that your student government pretty much takes funds from the student government fund and they recruit and they fund these student organizations. Well, Democrats love to um, recruit these student leaders to run for student office and they recruit a ton of these liberal leftist Latinx student groups. uh, And you see that all over these huge college campuses. So I decided to run for student government um, in in, uh, my university and I recruited about 30 of my friends uh, and got over 45 conservative student organizations on college campus. And we saw it that year in the election year. I mean, in, ter- in, in uh, the, the county where our university is, uh, 18 to 40-year-old uh, age gap voted the most conservative in any election year because we held massive voter registration drives and voter guide distributions through those conservative organizations. But it took me running for office, recruiting friends, opening up new organizations, funding those organizations. And it's a lot of work, a lot sure. of work that conservatives, we, you know, we tell usually conservative parents tell their, their kids, you're only going to go there, get an education and then get out. Right. Mm-hmm. We forget that the four years that they're there can be very life altering. So if we're not sure. also pressuring them to get involved and 
um, and, and get plugged into university organizations that promote uh, conservative values, and it can be a danger for them as well. So which is why within Bienvenida, we started our 1776 Education Fund, which was started by the 1776 Commission under President Trump to promote patriotic education yeah. in America. The first commission that President Biden dismantled on his first day of office was the 1776 right. education. So we took everything that we worked closely uh, with the White House on that, and we decided let's put this and recruit student body presidents. So right now we have over 20 student body presidents all over um, uh, the country, and their job is solely to recruit conservative organizations on college campus and lead voter mobilization, voter education drives through those student organizations. That's really where the sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. And why I'm optimistic is I go back to those student body leaders and we have monthly calls. And what I'm getting back, the, the feedback that we're getting is incredible. Right. The fact that just a little bit of resources to these student groups can cause massive change because the message is on our side. Mm -hmm. Listen, when, you, when, when young voters are really educated on what this Green New Deal, what it actually does to our economy, what open borders, what it actually does to the future of their, you know, their kids and their neighborhoods. They align with our message every single time. It's just we have to do the work of actually getting the message to them in a way that is coming to them from like a person that looks like them and sounds like them. Sure. Not some policy wonk that comes to the college campus yeah, and like, yeah. you know, screams at them and says, This is why liberals sure. are bad and this is why we're gonna own the leftists. No, I mean that's fun for a, a, a quick Instagram clickbait. Right. But when you're talking to these students, it, it really is, you kind of have to tell them you're wrong, but let me tell you why you're wrong in the most soft way possible because sure. college students are very emotional. No, you're right. right. Owning the libs can be very satisfying, right? But yeah. it's sort of candy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not real sustaining food, it's right? Not, it's, not, it's not, it's not the way we're going to save yeah. this country. And it, it can be entertaining and, and, and it can be useful at times, you know, but it, it's just, you know, a, a very tiny slice of what we yeah. need to do. Uh, as a movement. Now, speaking of that, let me ask you. So you you uh, you ran for office yourself. You've encouraged so many other people to run for for student government, gotten them elected. Mm -hmm. uh, what about beyond uh, universities? It's you're a young man. It seems to me with a no matter what you do, you have an incredibly bright future. Uh, but does that in future does that future include elected office? Are we going to have someday <laughs> a governor Enriquez, a president Enriquez? Oh, Is man. that in the never say never, Abraham? but never. Uh, are you kidding me? No, that, that to me, that is not in my plans. That is not something I am attracted to whatsoever. I love supporting candidates. That's really, I would rather be the person that kind of builds the coalition to get uh, a person to win. And let, 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 I want to talk about that for just a quick second, because Myra Flores, Texas District 34, uh, Cameron County, Monica La Cruz, Hidalgo County, South Texas, Maria Elvira Salazar, Miami-Dade County, Mike Garcia out in LA, Nicole Maliotakis out in New York City. These are heavy blue districts that were flipped because a Hispanic leader decided to step up and say, I'm going to change this district. And they did. Mm -hmm. They gave us a blueprint of how you go into deep blue districts and flip them. And what they did was they ran on the Bienvenido message of saying, let's let's take the word Republican out of the picture mm -hmm. and let's just talk about why I love America. Maria Alvira talking about, you know, her experience in Cuba. Mike Garcia, his parents immigrating here. Juan Ciscomani in Tucson, Arizona became the, the first Mexican-American uh, to represent Arizona in an in elected uh, office, uh, son of a bus driving immigrant. These stories could only happen in America. And when you tell your story, when you tell the Bienvenido message, uh, you know, you win over your voters. And I love that. I love mm. going into these deep blue districts where everyone is telling me, Abraham, there is no hope there. Right. Finding an amazing candidate 
pulling some incredible resources behind there and then going back to them and saying, hey, remember when you told me that Tesla Chicken 34 was hopeless? Look, we just flipped it because right. it's amazing candidate. That's where I find, I find so much purpose in life, being able to do that. And I found my superpower is being able to do that and, 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 and being kind of that, that person that supports these candidates. And yeah. when you see a Hispanic candidate running, I think we need to really give them props because it's not just like any other candidate. They have to raise double the money because it's double the commercials, both English and in Spanish, mm-hmm. double the voter literature. I mean, the, the, they're really sacrificing sure. the, their, their, their livelihood and their family for a higher purpose into saving this country. But it's not also just Hispanic candidates. There's an incredible candidates of all race that we support. Yeah. Uh, in Tarrant County, uh, one of the largest uh, metropolitan areas that we supported, Nate Schatzline, the evangelical vote came out and voted for him. And he, he won the won a, a large portion of the Hispanic vote, not because he was Hispanic, but because he ran on the issues that Hispanics care about. Mm-hmm. Listen, I don't care if you're Hispanic, white, black, Indian, Asian, if you run on the values of protecting America, you believe the American dream is worth saving and you believe that protecting our border is providing security for our country, I'm going to get behind you Amen. because that is yep. that is pro-Hispanic. You don't have right. to be Hispanic to be pro-Hispanic. And listen, uh, forever who's who's hearing tonight or who are on this episode, if you believe that America is a good country, if you believe that the American dream is worth saving, if you believe in protecting our border, if you believe protecting the nuclear family, then by golly, you are Hispanic. You might not know it. <laughs> yes. President Reagan said something. He said, um, Hispanics are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. I actually think he was wrong. I think Republicans are Hispanics. They just all don't know I it I like yet. it. Yes, yes, let's turn it around. Listen, you are a fighter and it is so admirable. Uh, Folks in the audience who want to learn more about you, your organization, where do they go? Yeah, they can find me on any social platform at abraham.enriquez or they can follow our organization at bienvenido.us. We'd love for them to partner with us um, and, and see all that what we're doing to really protect and save this country. Abraham, you're doing amazing work. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Really appreciate it. So Patriots, you know, again, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna and say, oh, things will be fine. Because as you know, if you watch my show, pay attention to my writings and my work, uh, I'm worried. I'm incredibly worried. And I think for valid reasons. And if you're anxious, you're anxious for valid reasons. Because there are so many things going wrong in our society, our economy, national security of the United States, and open border. And these problems are all created problems. All of them are fixable. Um, and I believe we can reclaim our republic, but uh, as Abraham and I mentioned, the clock is ticking, the hour is late, so we need to have that sense of urgency. But one of the legitimate reasons, maybe the the legitimate reason from my perspective, to be optimistic and to believe that though the hour is late, we can save this republic, is the emergence of Hispanics uh, as a major and massive cultural and political force in America and one that is clearly moving ideologically to the right. So that is a reason for you to take solace uh, and to be, I hope, further motivated to, uh, to pray and work to save this country. Thanks for joining us.